Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Let's talk about crime of a different sort, something that is increasingly affecting all of us. And the question comes up, does organized and violent theft really add to the cost that consumers face when it comes to retail? Well, the answer is yes. It almost uh, is a rhetorical question. Jess Ketchum is with Save Our Streets Vancouver, B.C., and he joins us now. Uh, Jess, great to have you in with us. Tell me about uh, this cost, because I see a number that you floated $824 per year for the average B.C. family. Where is this coming from? Well, thanks, Bruce, for um, for having me on this morning. Um, Save Our Streets um, Coalition is a, a group of um, of business organizations and concerned citizen groups from around B.C. It's not just Vancouver, around B.C., and it's come together over the last four or five months. Um, we now have 80 organizations. Um, these are not just individuals or individual businesses, but organizations Um that represent um, uh, business and communities. One of the things that, that we thought of coming up to budget time was, um, you know, we hear a lot when we talk about the budget about the increased cost of gas, increase, increased cost of groceries or rent, but we never stop and think about how does this um, level of crime impact individual families? It's just not out there. So. A group of uh, loss prevention professionals came together. Uh, they worked off of um, material from Stats Canada, from BC Stats, and their own experience as loss prevention uh, professionals, and came up with a number of $824 for every family in BC on an annual basis. And so you take, you take the amount that um, uh, businesses are suffering from theft, organized crime, the additional costs that they have for uh, security, for hiring security, for putting in uh, protections into their their retail operations, and you know it's pretty straightforward. You come up with that number, and it's very striking. Eight hundred twenty-four dollars, as you know, is is a lot. You know, Jess, you've been around political circles for years and uh, being a figure I remember back in the 1980s, um, usually behind the scenes. But, uh, you know, when we talk about this as an issue for politicians and policymakers, I don't know. It seems like we're talking about it more often now than we ever did in the past. Is it getting worse? Well, I think, Bruce, that um, uh, this is the worst that I've ever seen it. And it's the reason why this... Save Our Streets Coalition has come together so rapidly and so easily uh, in the past few months. And I think that we're, we're at a tipping point when people realize, I mean, your newscast this morning just demonstrates just how bad it can be. And I mean, it's white rock, for goodness sakes. And there's a, 
There's a, a shooting there. Four people, I understand, are in the hospital. You can bet that's organized crime. It's over the drug trade. The drug trade drives so much of the, the street violence that we see. Uh, you have people who are addicted, who are actually given a shopping list by organized crime to go in and steal high-end products so they can feed their habits. I mean, it's all related, Bruce, and it's it's been building up over over a number of years. And I think that, you know, the politicians, um, regardless of party, they, they recognize that there is an issue. They recognize that it's growing. But I think they had better recognize that the public are getting very, very sensitive around this issue now. They're, they're tired of seeing their communities deteriorate the way that they are, and they want to see something done about it. And they want, they want to be able to celebrate results, not just announcements and ambitions. You know, Jess, uh, I've always thought of things like shoplifting as being the purview of the really down and out, uh, the poor person on the street that's trying to feed their family and steals a loaf of bread. A little bit of hyperbole on my part, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, But what you're kind of connecting the dots to is organized crime, which is entirely different. Tell me about uh, how you've come up with this concept this idea and this knowledge that we have now that there are people working together to steal things from retail outlets. Yeah, there's um, the police forces in, in the um, primarily the major communities in BC and right across the country are very aware of um, the, um, the system that's being used by organized crime uh, where they recognize that there are certain products that will sell easily, they can fence quite easily. And so they, they um, prey on the people who are, who are sick, who are addicted to, to their drugs, and they provide them with um, basically a shopping list where they go into stores, they select those, those goods, and out they go and return them to, to um, uh, the, the criminal, if you will, who um, um, fences these products. And, and the individual who's done the um, done the uh, shoplifting um, is able to go uh, and uh, and purchase the drugs. It's a vicious, vicious circle, and disrupting that circle is really what um, uh, government and and the police forces need to do. We know of a high-profile instance uh, right here in downtown Vancouver, where London Drugs, the CEO, came out, Clint Melman, and said that there is a. Uh, a real problem with a London drugs location in downtown Vancouver, so much so that there is violence connected with it. This, by the way, is what he had to say. We routinely have our employees threatened with knives, needles, machetes, um, and other sort of bear spray. It's in northern BC. It's on Vancouver Island. We see it universally everywhere. Universally everywhere. And he's naming smaller communities too. What's going on here, Jess? So uh, Clint actually uh, is the uh, chair of our Save Our Streets Coalition, uh, very experienced um, uh, business executive who uh, has taken this on and, and has done wonderful work. Um, but he's traveled around the province. He's traveled outside of the province, dealt with communities who are going through these, these, these issues. And it is right throughout B.C. we have organizations that have popped up and come to us who are the only reason that they exist is because of the crime and violence that's happening on their streets. And as I say, it's from from Dawson Creek to Nelson to 
Duncan on the island, it is everywhere. Everywhere, and yet, is it going to be even the topic that's talked about in, like, today's provincial budget? Well, certainly the reason why we're trying to raise this uh, alarm, and, uh, you know, I, I, I read the, uh, the throne speech. There are some indications in there that government may be thinking about uh, public safety as, a, as an issue. You know what throne speeches are like. They kind of paint the vision. And um, we'll see today from the budget whether there's actually money uh, aimed at taking care of some of these things. And, you know, you can think about the obvious things like additional policing. But, you know, it's, it's like the, um, the lack of a port police in the port of Vancouver, the biggest port in Canada. And it doesn't even have a police force. And we know that, that there's a huge amount of the drug trade goes through the port of Vancouver. And yet there's no police force. Give me a break. Yeah, and I almost wonder if it's one of those things where we're turning a blind eye to it and know that we're turning a blind eye, meaning us, meaning politicians, meaning uh, people that may have a ability to do something about it, or do we just not know how organized crime works? I think there are people that very well know what how organized crime works. We have some excellent people who are in the intelligence business, who are in the uh, policing business, and and uh, they well know what's um, what's going on. I think that uh, the governments too often think that it's just complicated and throw up their hands. And, you know, one of the things that we've learned through this process, Bruce, is that it's very difficult to find uh, statistics that you can use to measure whether or not things are getting better or worse. And I think that governments are almost hesitant to put statistics out there that can be used as key performance measures as to whether or not they're getting the job done. And if one thing we can do through this process is to get governments to be more um, open in providing that sort of data, that would be extremely helpful so that we can, as a public, we can see whether things are getting worse or getting bad. So Stats Canada uh, has reported recently that, that um, organized theft and retail theft is up 32% in 22 the problem is that you get one report out a year in arrears. So here we are just going into 24, and Stats Canada is just reporting on 22. Well, quite frankly, that's just not good enough. We need to have um, more data, and we need to have it in a more rapid way so that you, know, you can measure success on a quarterly basis, and therefore you can see whether or not the programs that you've initiated are actually working or not. To that end, Jess, who's answering the call when Save Our Streets Coalition is uh, reaching out? Anyone uh, agreeing to meet with you that is a policymaker? Well, um, we we um, uh, decided right out of the gate, uh, Bruce, that we weren't going to be prescriptive. We weren't going to tell the government how to fix these problems because, <coughs> excuse me, we don't have the resources, we don't have the expertise. Government does. But the other thing that government has that we don't is the responsibility. So we're saying fix the problem, but we need to know uh, what data can we use to measure whether or not their programs are being successful. I don't think there's any issue at all with meeting with the government. Lots of meetings have been held. But I think that, that the most important thing coming out of this, the public needs to understand we need a better means to measure whether government is being successful or not. 
There so, we go. And yeah. I think that is a good point to uh, leave this on. And uh, measurement, you can't manage it without measurement, as they always say. Jess, thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much, Bruce. This is Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith on BC Budget Day. Housing affordability in this province, it is the issue that just won't go away. It's also going to take center stage this afternoon as we learn more details outlined in spending priorities in the BC budget. But already we have BC United and Kevin Falcon saying they would cancel the NDP's plan. In fact, BC United unveiled their plan last week with promises to launch a rent-to-own program, eliminate property tax or transfer tax for the first-time home buyers, that on properties up to a million bucks, and utilize publicly owned land to build affordable housing and also eliminate the PST on residential construction. Kevin Falcon, rather ambitious. And, of course, taxes playing into that. Here's what Kevin had to say on the tax issue. Why are we saying to young couples that are trying to get into the housing market that we are going to ding you with up to $18,000 in additional costs when most young couples can't even save up a down payment? And we're saying we're not going to do that anymore. And that in part is why he's mincing no words on saying that plan that we're hearing more about, he would cancel it. Of course I would cancel it because it makes about as much sense as their old housing flub plan made sense. Yes, we need to have more market affordable housing. There's no question about that. The government's not going to be able to build it. You provide the right incentives and you get the private sector and the not-for-profit sector building that housing and you build it at scale. Okay, so would the BC United housing plan be effective? Well, let's bring in Tom Davidoff, director at UBC Centre for Urban Economics and Real Estate. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Thank you. You're not in the lockup today, but uh, we all know what's uh, going to be outlined, at least in terms of housing. Pretty much we know. Uh, and is it the right direction that the NDP is taking, or is are there concerns that really are valid in what Kevin Falcon's outlining? Top level down, what are we looking at? Right. Well, let's start with uh, what the provincial government has done. And uh, I, I did do some work uh, modeling uh some of the reforms, so, you know, just just, uh, for full information. But they say the best things in life are free, and uh, I think there's no budget consequence for the best thing the government has done, which is to really force municipalities to get serious about housing supply by deregulating. That's just uh, saying you can't be too nimbious. You've got to allow multifamily housing everywhere, and that was for free. Uh, BC Builds is interesting. It... um, provides a, a venue or a, facilitates municipal governments or the province or nonprofits uh, sort of contributing land uh, and then uh, having the province and fed step in and provide financing to build rental housing on the land. I think, you know, that makes perfect sense. They're trying to get through approvals quickly, which also makes sense. You know, uh, they want it to be affordable to the local workforce. My own view is the most important thing is to get housing built. And uh, if, if, if market rents are high, you could redirect those to just cash assistance to households and needs or uh, in-kind support for people who really need it. Uh, but, but that's a bit of a quibble. There'll probably be a flipping tax in the budget today. 
Uh, I think politically it's important to have people know uh, that sort of bad demand isn't out there. I, I don't think the flipping tax itself will be very consequential. I like the term bad demand because it's not just supply and demand. Uh, there's good demand and bad demand. What do we mean by that? Well, certainly in the public's eye, right? So the foreign buyer tax, speculation, empty homes, uh, you know, people want to think homes are used uh, as, as residences for people who live and work here. Whether I think politically uh, you can get into good and bad. Uh, but I do think it's reasonable for people to hope that homes are primarily used as residences for the local workforce or retirees. We know the lower mainland, Vancouver in particular, but the lower mainland and most of BC has been driven by this high demand for for housing. That's a reality. It's a reality right across the country. But is it built on the premise that uh, housing really is more of an investment, do you think? And are we trying to re-engineer that thinking? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, as you say, uh, and the right way to measure housing cost is rents. You know, prices are complicated. They involve discounting, and so prices will change with interest rates and investor sentiment. But there's no question that, like everywhere else in Canada, uh, Vancouver is seeing rapidly rising rents, super low vacancy. So it's very hard for people to find affordable rental housing. And, you know, you can talk about bubbles uh, in terms of prices, but you don't really have rent bubbles. Uh, so what's going on is uh, too many people, not enough homes. And the obvious solution is build more homes. Build more homes, but build more homes for whom? Is it going to be? And is, is this the mark? Are we building homes for families or are we building homes for kind of properties to hold on to in a portfolio? Yeah, another great question. And I think, again, the most important thing is to build square footage of housing. Should that be small apartments uh, for, for yuppies? Should it be family housing? Should it be owned? Should it be rented? Should it be hybrid own rent? Should it be co-op? That's really second order. And I think it's fine to let the market speak. What we need are more homes. Some households won't make enough money to afford the homes that get built. Uh, and, uh, you know, they need some kind of cash support unless they're struggling with personal demons or whatever uh, and require sort of wraparound services that go along with the housing. Um, you asked about, you know, uh, investor demand. And I think it's easy to say, you know, these small one bedrooms that get built in uh, in condos, they're just for flippers or investors and they're not really what renters want. The problem with that argument is that's what gets built in rental buildings as well, because that's where the end user demand is. Why do end users want small units? Because they can't afford bigger units because housing is just so expensive here. You know, it's interesting because we see these uh, stories of apartments that come up in Vancouver and they're almost like little closets. They have all in one and people are living in them. They're going uh, right to seeing what I can't imagine was purpose built, but that is what's on the market right now. If you look at uh, ads, it's not dominating the market, but they're out there and people are attracted to them. Does that surprise you? No. Uh, you know, again, it's the affordability issue. And what's the alternative? You know, there's people who live in their cars. There's people certainly who'd like to get out of their parents' basement but can't afford to. So the alternatives just aren't great. You know, people talk about, oh, we don't need luxury condos and uh, luxury uh, purpose-built rental units. We, we need to somehow change the supply. Well, 
these aren't luxurious places. They're small and dark. I mean, even the, you know, stuff with beautiful architectural facades isn't always so great on the interior. You know, I don't think that's luxury living at all. But people need a place to live and they can't afford multiple bedrooms. And, you know, they're probably renting uh, spaces that are smaller than they, they'd optimally like. Going to talk about some of the programs that uh, Kevin Falcon mentioned because their concepts are out there. I don't know that his party owns these as ideas. Mm-hmm. They're talked about all the time, but will they work? Let's start with the first one. This whole idea of rent to own as a program and launching a new rent to own program, does that work? Uh, it hasn't worked much. Most people build either purpose built rental or condo buildings. The concept isn't crazy. It's hard for people to assemble down payments. And so, you know, if you're renting, but then you're subsequently, you know, saving up and hoping to buy a place, it would be nice if you didn't have to move between the rent and the buying. But it's a tough contract. Are you forcing people uh, to purchase a couple of years from now? Or are you saying they have the option to? Either way, you get into complications, and then the rent has to be high to pay for the option to walk away from buying. It's a complicated contract. It's probably more brain damage uh, than people are interested in getting into. If the market can make it work, great. But to say 15% of all housing built here has to follow a model that historically hasn't worked particularly well, that's a a bit of a head-scratcher. I do understand the issue of trying to overcome the hurdle to down payments. I think that that makes sense in terms of the the, um, transfer tax cut for first-time buyers. Uh, But, you know, that as a number one way you're going to solve the housing problem was a bit of a head-scratcher. Yeah, let's talk about that property transfer tax, because that's the other point that's being brought up. Is it the right move to get rid of it? You know, I'll tell you what, if you would, uh, if, if the BC United would say what we were going to do is we're going to change the way we tax property, we're going to raise annual property taxes, but we're going to get rid of the property transfer tax in a budget neutral way. So that would just pay for itself. That would make pretty good sense, because the problem with the property transfer tax is uh, people can avoid transactions. They don't buy, they defer buying, you know, they, they own their home, they don't sell it. Uh, why are you punishing people for, for transferring property? It's a property tax that only you only pay if, if you buy or, or move. So, you know, why not just be neutral on that and let people decide when they want to move and just raise the property tax level uh, to pay for that? On the other hand, if it's, you know, a property tax cut, uh, you know, just for first-time buyers that isn't funded that way and goes uh, is paid for with higher income or sales taxes or less spending on schools or hospitals, I'd be less supportive of that because some of the benefit is going to accrue to sellers uh, because buyers are willing to pay more if they don't have to pay the transfer tax. We're talking with Tom Davidoff, director of UBC Centre for Urban Economics and Real Estate. Tom, the other one that's being mentioned here, or one of the other ones, is uh, using publicly owned land to build affordable housing. And I find that interesting because when you say publicly owned land, what are we talking about? Um, Publicly owned land could be anything. That's right. Obviously, there's a cost uh, to to using publicly owned land to building housing. You know, I wouldn't want to take Stanley Park and build condos there. uh, But you may have underused manufacturing land, just random vacant lots. There is a lot of land owned by the public. There's crown land uh, outside uh, of, of metropolitan areas. So I don't think it's crazy at all to think about using that public land. And uh, both the uh, BC NDP and the BC United Party seem to be in agreement uh, that uh, there should be a way to make it uh, convenient and easy uh, to build housing on public land.
Yeah, it's uh, and BC is a big province. There's a lot of publicly owned land around. When you get into urban centers, I would imagine much of that is land that you don't necessarily want to see construction in, at least not in the past. The final one here that's been talked about, and I've heard this over the course of the year, eliminating the PST on residential construction. Does that, in fact, make any difference? Yeah, I think uh, taxing construction makes it less attractive to build and you get less building done. On the other hand, you know, a lot of the reason people don't build is regulation, uh, and we have what we would generally describe as an inelastic housing supply. And when that's true, some of that tax cut uh, on new supply uh, goes to landowners because developers are willing to pay more for land if it costs less to, to build, right? You know, developers will generally compete with each other so that the profit from building land is just enough to make the project interesting. And you get rid of the uh, PST on construction, you increase profits. And so some of that tax cut, which has to be paid for, goes to landowners. So a bit of a trade-off. Good to encourage new housing supply, uh, a bit of land, uh, a bit of you know valuable public fund going to uh, landowners who mostly don't need it. Tom, before we let you go, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here and ask you a year down the road or two years down the road, certainly after we see the effects of whatever's outlined in the budget today, are we going to be better off or worse off when it comes to Vancouver and the rest of the province? Right. So the right question, in a way, is are we going to be better off because of the measures in the budget relative to a world without those measures? Uh, and I think, you know, B.C. builds just it, it mostly makes sense to use public land to get housing built, assuming the public land isn't, isn't better used for something else. So a vehicle for communities and nonprofits in the province to turn their land into housing, that's good. That said, I don't think people uh, looking for housing are going to be better off. My guess is homeowners will be better off a year or two down the road because rates will fall and their property values will be up. Uh, But their kids and renters, uh, I'm not optimistic. I don't think it's very likely at all that the market plus government is going to supply enough housing to keep up with demand growth, largely fueled by immigration, but also uh, millennial households still forming uh, new households. So, uh, yeah, no, I think things are going to get worse. The other thing is nobody's building these days. You know, the supply has really slowed down because of high interest rates. And that means there's going to be a dearth of new projects, particularly rental, coming to market in a couple of years, which means uh, nowhere for demand to go but uh, bidding up existing unit prices. Tom, thanks so much. I always appreciate your expertise, your insights and knowledge on this and coloring in some of the grays when it comes to this real challenge. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Link is off today. I'm Bruce Clackett in for him. And it being February 22nd, this is almost the midway point between January 1st, New Year's Day, and the tax deadline. And what better time to take a look at your finances and maybe your financial resolutions you made back on January 1st, the commitments you had to get your finances back on track. Are they back on track? Is there something that you need as a bit of a reality check? Well, let's bring in Simone Liss, who is the president and CEO of the BBB, serving mainland British Columbian, uh, mainland British Columbia. Good morning, Simone. How are you? I'm great. Good morning to you. Good morning and always a difficult conversation, but one we should have indeed. 
Time to uh, check those resolutions, especially this year with interest rates being so high. Why does the BBB do this? Come out with the best tips. Well, we know that uh, for a variety of reasons. One, of course, is we want to make sure that uh, consumers are making smart choices. Uh, you know, part of our mandate is to help educate and connect consumers with businesses that they can trust. And we also know that if you are feeling financial pressure, you are feeling worry, you might make choices that ultimately put money in the wrong pockets. So if we can help do either of those things by providing tips, um, ultimately we're achieving our goal, which is really about ethics and, and, and consumer security. And maybe your stress and confidence, stress goes down, confidence level goes up. At least that's what I'm hoping this morning as we go through some of these five tips. And I like them. Some of them are obvious, but some of them uh, may be ones that uh, you just want to take heed of and make sure that you're doing. And the first one that's on your list is improving your credit score. Why? Well, absolutely. I mean, first of all, uh, you know, especially in our market right now, um, people may be down the road looking for financial um, lending or financial support. And so if you don't have great credit, um, that is going to impact your ability to get the best interest rate or credit at all. Uh, so if you have the opportunity, I mean, we always stress that you should be checking your credit history, at least annually anyway, just to see where it is. And then also, of course, to make sure that you're aware of what's on it and confirm that what's on it should be on it so you can dispute it at that point. Um, so if you do have, uh, you know, Equifax says, uh, which is one of the credit bureaus, they said if you have a score of less than 660, you should try to raise it. And there are things you can do. Um, you can do things like making sure you're paying your bills on time, um, make sure you pay in full, limit the amount of credit you have, um, and try to, if you've got, you know, credit cards with extremely high um uh, you know, opportunity for using and you're not using it, you can always bring down your credit limit and that will just help you with your credit score. When you talk about paying your bills on time, what are we talking about that hurts? Is it uh, being a couple days late on your uh, TELUS bill or is it something more than that? Well, I mean, you know, cre the credit reporting is actually um, quite, uh, quite intensive. So if you do look at your credit score, you can see that they're looking at um, over time, they're looking at how often you're late and that kind of reporting is shown. So, you know, as soon as you are late, of course, you're going to be paying interest on your bills. So if you can pay it on time, that is only going to be to your benefit. Um, and if you can, if you can't pay the full amount, at least paying some of it is better than nothing. And it's not a fair world. If you have one of those lower credit scores, you're not entitled to the best loan, are you? That's right. And so being aware of that and making sure that um, you're cognizant of what your credit score is and then setting up a path, path forward. I mean, just because this is your credit score today doesn't mean that's going to be your credit score tomorrow. Um, so that really nicely leads into understanding your, your debt and, and making a plan for it. Knowledge is great, but I was under the impression when you check your credit score, that check that you even make is going to end up hurting your credit score. Is that true? I've heard that a lot, but my understanding is that, that just the credit check itself is not something that impacts your score. Um, the amount of doubt that you, uh, the amount of money that you owe, the amount of liability or potential debt that you have against your name. So even though 
you know, maybe your credit card has a limit of $15,000 on it, but you actually only use about $300 of that a month, that impacts your score. Um, but just checking your credit does not impact your score from what I, what I understand. Another one, I like this one, create a personal budget. Absolutely. I mean, how much of how many of us actually know how we're spending money every month? And so if you can start off by getting a sense of what are your fixed expenses, like how much are you paying on things like mortgage, rent, you know, your car, cell phones, and then you have an opportunity of looking at what's left over for discretionary. So discretionary would be things like, you know, going to the movies or buying some new clothes. Um, from there, it gives you a chance to really assess and set up a budget. Uh, the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada actually has this really great financial tool that can help you set up a budget. And um, there's also this great rule that, that I've heard of, the 50-30-20 rule, uh, which basically means that your goal is to set up 50% of your income for your needs. So that's the, the mortgage, the car, the car payments, um, 20% to pay down any debt or to save, and then 30% left over for that discretionary spend for those wants, like going to the movies. Some people may be saying easier said than done, uh, yeah. but they understand that that is a good idea, as is this next one, easier said than done, but also a good idea, building that emergency fund. What for? Why? Well, it's, it's more than just a rainy day fund. It's, you know, what if tomorrow you lost your job or you got into an accident and you couldn't work? What would you be living off of, right? So having a, a nest egg, um, some sort of fund that you could reach out if you did need money for three to six months is going to help you in the long run for that, for that emergency. Um, so as I said, experts kind of recommend that you save about three to, you know, your nest egg is about three to six months of what you would regularly need in the way of expenses. And I mean, that might seem like a lot of money to save right away. Uh, but even if you could put a small amount aside every month, that's going to help you. So, I mean, if you look at what do you have left once you've done your budget um, and then think about even if I can cut down maybe $20 on my discretionary spend, you know, $20 saved uh, every month is still going to equal, yeah, great, here's an opportunity for me to do math, but, you know, $2,400 at the end of the year. So it's anything that you can start is going to help you in the long run. Absolutely. We're doing a bit of a reality check because we're almost at the halfway mark between January 1st and coming up to the tax deadline time. Simone Liss is the president and CEO of the BBB serving mainland British Columbia. We're checking on those financial resolutions and taking a look at things that we may have forgotten as we try to get our own house in order when it comes to money. Number four on the list. Simone, determine and assess any debt you owe. What do you mean by determine and assess? Well, take a moment to understand what you owe. Um, you know, write it down and then also write down uh, the interest uh, rates on each of what you owe. So, for example, do you have student loans? Do you have credit card balances? Those are all things that you have to pay back. Um, if you know who you owe and how much you owe and on also, you know um, the percentage of interest that they're charging you each month. That then gives you an opportunity to consider how you want to start attacking that debt. I mean, here is probably a great opportunity for you if you have a lot of debt to meet with a financial planner um, who might give you some suggestions on where to start. 
Um, there are different methods. There's something, I like these analogy. There's the snowball method and then there's the debt avalanche. So in the snowball method, you look at who you owe the smallest amount of money to and you attack those first. Um, with the debt avalanche, you look at the ones with the highest interest rate and you attack those first. Yeah, I've heard of um, both of those. I find them fascinating, but at least they are a plan and a yeah. way to go about in uh, ordering which ones you're going to tackle. This next one, a little bit grim. No one wants to really think about it, but it is part of life, creating a will. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people think you don't need a will until you get to be older. And at that point, maybe then it's a good idea. Uh, but really, do you really want someone else to consider um, if something does happen to you, um, where your assets are going to and who's going to administer how those assets are distributed? So we would highly recommend, especially with those people who have children or, um, you know, maybe maybe a spouse, maybe a partner you want to give your assets to and there is no legal relationship, just taking some time to work with a lawyer to um, put together how you want things taken care of. Um, and then, of course, you want to deal with someone who is a professional so that if something does happen, the will is legal and you don't have to have some sort of you know, nightmare for your family to have to deal with after the sure. fact. Sure. Lawyer or notary public, uh, two ways to go about doing it. Uh, Simone, thanks so much. But you do have these uh, listed out on the web. Uh, give us the website where somebody can take a look at these uh, tips? Absolutely. If you come to BBB.org, um, we actually have a specific page dedicated to these types of tips at BBB.org forward slash all forward slash new dash year dash S dash guide. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.